0: marriage. When people get married and they exchange their vows right here on these steps behind me, they often say these two little words, I do. But you might know that in the older services, and praise the Lord, the newer services that have gone back to the good old ways, the bride and groom, they don't say, I do. They say, I will. And I am pleased about this. One, because I'm a traditionalist and I like old stuff, but two, because this is covenant language. I will is the language that God uses whenever he makes a promise. And, and I will is a far greater statement than I do. Do you promise? Sure, why not? Easy peasy. Anyone can make a promise, right? Will you keep it? That is a much harder, bigger, better question, is it not? Will you keep your word? Now, I once worked for an insurance company and the marketing department of the company came up with a new slogan, delivering the promises. And all the linguists had a beef with this. It's too weak, they said. Anyone can deliver a promise. And what our clients want to know is, will we keep them? All the lawyers had a beef with it as well. It's too strong, we said. You want to avoid this word promise at all costs. The best way to keep your word is never to give it in the first place. Of course, the marketing department had their way. No one listened to the linguists nor to the lawyers. They never do. But in a supreme twist of irony, when they launched their new slogan and campaign printed on every mug and mouse mat in the Western world, They misspelled their own slogan, which we thought was hilarious. Even those with the greatest of intentions cannot keep their word. Often, we can't even spell it properly. You might make a promise in all sincerity, but be prevented from keeping it by things outside of your control. You do not know the future, you do not control the future. You don't control any of the variables that will go on today and tomorrow and and every day until the Lord returns. Anything could intervene at any point. Quantum physicists say that all of the molecules in your body could just suddenly go somewhere else if they wanted to. And you can't control anything. People make mistakes. So when people say, I will... We know what they really mean. We know that they really mean a might. When they say, I will, what they mean is, I will do my best. I will try my best. Uh, That's why in the baptism service, for example, we say, with the help of God, we will. We know that we need his help in order to do anything. And that is just the good guys. That's just people making a well-intentioned promise with the words, I will. You know as well as I do, many people make promises with no intention of ever keeping them at all. Have you heard these words, for example? I will pay you back next week. I'll put it in the mail right now. Or I will make sure it gets done today. What do we say? Can I have that in writing, please? Why does America have a written constitution? Because you don't trust each other. Why does Britain not because we can't spell. That's why. <laughs> Often when people say, I will, what they mean is, I won't. I have no intention of doing this thing. And so it is understandable, therefore, with all of that baggage of broken promises that we have lived with in our lives, when God says, I will, we flinch. Really? Really? All of these promises? Uniquely. Uniquely. As Ben said just a few moments ago, when when God says, I will, he means, I will. God alone is good. God alone knows all things and controls all things perfectly. nothing ever takes God by surprise. Nothing intervenes to thwart his will. Nothing comes up. There are no caveats. There are no fingers crossed. There are no hidden costs. As you read the Bible, Given that God doesn't have to make you a single promise at all, it is amazing to discover just how frequently he uses these two little words, I will. I will is written all over Scripture. It's just everywhere. He is a promise maker. God makes promises. And in these five weeks, we're going to look at some of the biggest promises in the Old Covenant We're looking at Genesis today. We're going to be looking at Abraham and Moses. We're going to look at the promise to David. We're going to look at the promise to a people in exile in a foreign land. And every single time God approaches them and gives them His word, He says these two little words, I will. Our aim is that when you see this, you never stop seeing it. You never stop seeing that God says, I will. And As you start to see that God is a promise maker, our aim is that you start to join the dots and start to ask the questions, is he also a promise keeper? He's given his word so many times, has he kept it? That's the aim of this series, for you to see that God is a promise maker, God is a promise keeper, and he makes one to you as well. So let's turn together to Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is one of those passages of Scripture that we preach on all the time. So we're not going to dig into everything we've done that many times before. We're just going to look at one facet of, of Genesis 3 this morning. And as we do, we start to find the first examples of this little phrase, I will. Let's turn together to Genesis chapter 3. And actually, if you just go back a tiny bit to Genesis 2, you'll see, the first example, you probably know the very, very first example of I will in Scripture is God's promise to Adam to make Eve, and it's very quickly fulfilled, and I think that's Genesis 2.18. And then God places them in the garden, and God uh, is, is giving them authority and dominion and, and, and all of his image that he's created them both in but the serpent comes along, the serpent deceives them, they eat of the fruit, sin enters the world, and that very moment their relationship with God is spoiled, and their relationship with one another is spoiled, and their relationship with the whole of creation is spoiled. A threefold aspect of the curse of the fall is that our relationship with God, with other people, and things is ruined. And God approaches them. In their sin, the low point in Scripture, I admit it's only a few pages old, the Bible, at this point. But we've reached a low point. And he says in verse 13, this is uh, chapter 3, verse 13. What have you done? Aren't those just the worst words to hear? Well, that means you've been caught. You're probably even asking yourself that before you are court. What have I done? Uh, Isn't this just the worst thing you can hear? this This is the beginning of judgment. What were you thinking? What is the matter with you? What's all this? What have you done? A whole future of pain and destruction just opens up before them. Just a great vista of calamity is suddenly before them as they see what they've done. This moment is the moment that spoils the world. You can draw a direct line from this moment to COVID-19. You can draw a direct line from this moment to the turmoil and scenes of, of injustice we've seen on our screens this week so powerfully exposed. Or you can draw a direct line from this to any feeling you've ever had of being distant with God, any concerns as to whether God might love you or might care for you, and maybe you've not felt his voice or you've been feeling distant from him. Your relationship with God, with people, and with things has been impaired, and you only need the Sky News app to see that Genesis 3 is correct. I'm not making light of any of these things by describing them in the same breath. I'm making heavy of them. They're examples of sin. The threefold aspect of the fall is that our relationship with God, people, and things is impaired. And before we get too self righteous, in this season, at pointing out who the bad guys are and tweeting our virtues. We do this. We do all of these things. We sin. And anyone who is aware of their sin has probably felt shame. What does God have to say to you if you've been caught? And the question is, what have I done? What do we do? when we get caught we start to look for reasons don't we when someone has done something wrong we start to look for reasons there's a glimmer of hope there we do that because we're made in the image of God and God has given us faculties of reason we like explanations for things when they go wrong so we look for patterns we look for reasons we look for causes that is part of our God-given creation Eve even does the very thing here she starts to use what is left of this God-given image shattered though it is it's still there She starts to use it to give a reason, an explanation for what went down. The woman said, I'm in verse 4 now, the serpent deceived me and I ate. You just need to go back a little bit to verse 4 to see that this is true. He did. You see the deception so cleverly, so clearly spoken in verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. It's a lie, isn't it? It's a lie. But look carefully. It is dressed up in the language of a promise. This is why broken promises and false promises aggravate us so much. They're entirely satanic in their origin. It's a false promise that Satan makes to her. You will surely not die. Like everything Satan does, what this is is a counterfeit version of what God does. It's a twisted theme. It's a twisted version or variation on a theme. It's uh, spoiled. It's an inverted, twisted sort of a promise. You're going to be okay. Go on, do it. But unlike God's promises, this one of Satan is designed to destroy. But God also has something to say in this story. God speaks a better and a bigger word over Satan's lies. Verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, he is to blame. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. It's a curse, and then it is a promise. I will, says God to Satan, put enmity between you and the woman, This is the first major long-term promise in Scripture, and it is given to all things to Satan here. I will put enmity between you and the woman. God's ultimate response to the sin of Adam and Eve is to judge the evil one who is behind it all, to go for Satan And so strong is the response here of Yahweh to the serpent in the garden that some scholars have described this as the first piece of good news in the whole of Scripture. Justice will be served. There are two sides here. Eve is on God's side. Satan is not. Justice will be served on the one ultimately responsible for all this sin. When you've been sinned against, whatever that may be, you cry out for justice. When you're suffering, when you're aware that some of the sin is your own, you cry out for hope. And when you confess your sins, you cry out for grace. That's what you want. Eve gets all three. She gets justice, she gets hope, she gets grace, all wrapped in this one single promise here. Because next God says to her, between your offspring and her offspring. Actually, God says it to Satan. God's still speaking to Satan. He says, between your offspring, Satan, and Eve's offspring, I will put enmity. Join the dots. Eve is going to have kids. And they're not going to be on Satan's side. The story is going to go on. Something is going to unfold. God is still going to bless her in some way. And these kids are going to fight the snake. Only it's not kids plural, because it's not offsprings, plural, it's offspring singular. One offspring, one particular descendant of Eve, just one, one only, one unique offspring will come and deal with Satan in one decisive last battle. In our brainstorming session this week, as we looked at the bulletin the image, and the title, and the subtitle, and all of the sermons, and the structure of how they would fit together. Ben Woolpe just uh, said this: "Look, this reminds me," he said, "of Second Corinthians one twenty. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him." Now Robert, independently, with just the Holy Spirit to help him, only just manages to plan a brand new song for his yes and amen. It comes from the very same verse. You can't make this stuff up. But here. God is saying to her, there will be an offspring. And later on, the Apostle Paul says, it's Jesus. He is the yes and the amen. He is the fulfillment of all of these promises. Every single time God says, I will in Scripture, every one of them points to this one single offspring. This promise unlocks all of the promises yet to come. And this is God still speaking to Satan about it. Satan is actually the subject of God's salvation plan. And God is... Telling him about it. We don't normally tell our enemies what we're going to do to them. Not unless we're in a supremely strong position, which of course God is. Jesus Christ will win. Now, remember, often when people make a promise, they don't always count the cost. And when they realize the cost of the promise they've made, they start to back out of it, don't they? I'm sorry. We've been unable to fulfill your order. I don't know if she knows yet, but that's what Amazon are about to say to my daughter because they can't deliver her cosmetics, and I'm angry. But uh, not so with God. God doesn't do that. God doesn't say, I'm I'm sorry, something came up. Uh, You know, I I didn't realize it was going to cost my life, so uh, I can't do it now. Not so with God. God knew the cost in this moment and yet he still makes the promise. In fact, God knew the cost before creation, and yet he still created it because of who he is. And and God is promising here to pay the cost of Eve's mistake. Therein lies the grace. There will be justice. Justice will be done to the serpent, but it'll be paid for by Christ. Therein lies the hope. It is a descendant of Eve's. Eve, of all people, gets to participate in this story one of her descendants, will be Jesus Christ. What is the cost to Jesus Christ? God continues. You know, most people hide the cost. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's the same word, bruise. You can see that there, bruise, bruise. That's interesting. That's important. It means to crush or to strike. And so just as Christ will will crush Satan in the same way Satan will crush Christ. It is the same word, bruise. Note also, though, the symmetry is broken as well as, as put into place. It's not the same body part that is going to be bruised. Satan's wound will be to the head. It will be a mortal blow to Satan. Christ's wound is to the heel. It is not a mortal wound. Christ dies on the cross And his wounds are real, but he raises from the grave and he is seated at the right hand of the Father on high. On the cross, Satan looks like he's rubbing his hands, looks like he's won. But we know that Christ is triumphing on the cross. The cross looks like round two to the snake, but it's not. There's only one more round left to go, and that is when Christ returns to make all things new. If God says he will, what do you think he will do? Satan's bound by the cross. He's still around, he's still dangerous, but he's bound and he's headed to the pit. And God promised this in the first pages of Scripture. God has kept every single promise that he has made, except for one, and that is to return to make all things new. So with a track record like that, you have to ask yourself what do you think is going to happen. We have a decision to make as well, don't we, in light of this. Every promise of God finds its fulfillment in Christ Jesus, and he's kept every single one except for one. Why has he not kept it yet? Maybe he's waiting for you. Maybe the Lord is tarrying for you. There's just one left. And my question to you is, when God invites you to turn to him, can you use his words back to him? Can you say, I will? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you make these extraordinary promises found in the very first pages of Scripture, that your response to our sin is to step in, to pay the cost and to redeem us and even to engage us in that story, broken though we are. And Father God, we, we know that you have fulfilled every promise. You're a promise maker and promise keeper. And we know that you have promised to return. So, Father, please send out your word to all the nations. Would many this very day turn to you in faith? And would you come, Lord Jesus Christ, to heal the nations? In the name of Jesus, amen.